our scripture lesson for the sermon this evening as we continue a study of Ephesians. This is in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. Again, going a little more quickly, covering more territory than I might if we were doing this in a morning service. Just giving us a survey through Ephesians. We turn to again Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. And again, this is the word of the living God as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Ephesus. And so because this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and because he superintended the writing of this letter, though it is Paul's words and expressions of his thoughts, every word on the page is exactly what the Holy Spirit intended, and so it is the very word of God and is therefore without error. So let's attend, therefore, to the inerrant word of God. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the working of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. In chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, Paul spoke to what we might call doctrinal issues. Uh, the, the basic teachings of the gospel. And you will have noticed how important the doctrine of the church is to Paul in this letter. The church is God's chosen people, a new nation, God's family, and his temple. He's used language of that sort already in this letter. Well, now he shifts from uh, theology proper, uh, telling us, about uh, God and also telling us the, the sub uh, the sub standard or the sub uh, divisions excuse me of the of the uh, 
discipline of theology, particularly ecclesiology, as well as soteriology. Basically, that just means soteriology just means the doctrine of salvation, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. He's touched on both of those especially. And he's now turning from those basic doctrines that he wants to communicate to duty, uh, from knowledge to action. Knowing these things about God and about ourselves, how should we then respond? So notice first, the word therefore is in the first verse. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, beseech you, and so on. What is to follow is to be the result, it's to be the consequence of the teaching up to this point. Because of all these things I've said, particularly, we'll note, because of the things he said about the church, about the fact that the church is a body with Christ being the head, uh, that it's a chosen people, a new nation, God's family and his temple. Knowing these things, uh, what should we do? This is to be the result, the consequences of what he's taught up to this point. If you learn in school that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but then you live and act as if it equals 3 or 5, well, the knowledge hasn't really made any difference in your life, has it? What difference has the knowledge of God made in your life as a Christian? Paul is asking this here, and he's he's wanting the Ephesian Christians to know that there need to be Fruits born as results of what they know. Has it changed you? Has it been a mere intellectual exercise? It's noteworthy that in this passage, Paul says, as we'll come to here a little bit later, uh, just as an aside, uh, almost just as a dependent clause, he says we are to be speaking the truth in love, and that not awfully long after this, particularly if we take the view that we noted this morning in Sabbath school that uh, the likelihood that the book of Revelation was actually written in the 60s, probably only a few years after this, Jesus is dictating to John a letter to this same church and says, good job with the doctrine, but you forgot the love you once had. What difference has the knowledge of God made in our lives? The word order in most English translations might throw us off from verse 1 here. For example, the New King James Version says, as we just read, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The ESV and other translations are virtually identical. Some have misunderstood this as Paul simply restating that he's a prisoner because he taught this doctrine. It's certainly true. But the Greek original begins with the verb parakalo, which means to urge, to exhort. If we translate it with the Greek word order, it would read something like exhort or urge, therefore I you, the prisoner in the Lord, worthily to walk of the calling of which you were called. So the emphasis really there isn't on his being the prisoner of the Lord, though note that he isn't saying I'm a prisoner of the Romans. That's where he was when he was 
writing this letter, but who's he really a prisoner of? The Lord. His identity is with Christ. He belongs to him. He's there because of his sovereign working that brought Paul to this point. But the emphasis here is on exhort or strongly urge through an emphatic call. In other words, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 is the beginning of this exhortation portion of Paul's letter. Here I've taught you this. Now I'm telling you as the messenger from God, do this. Here's what we know. Now here's what we need to do about it. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. We all know that walk in Scripture in the New Testament and the Old is a figure of speech used frequently to talk about one's behavior. It's not just talking about uh, how you walk down the aisle here to get to your pew or uh, how you might stroll to the post office or something, right? Uh, It's talking about your manner of life. God has sovereignly called us to be his own How do we then live? And how do we go about doing what he wants? How do we walk in a worthy manner? Of course, remember, not a single one of us is worthy in and of ourselves to be in God's kingdom. So how can we possibly walk worthily? Well, it can't be by our own strength. It has to be by the Holy Spirit. But, of course, being empowered by the Holy Spirit... As those who are in Christ, uh, we now can make choices that are godly. And here are some of the things that he tells us to do to make godly choices about how we live would include what we see in verses 2 and 3. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is a, another way of saying what Jesus says to his disciples and how it, what he prays about in his great high priestly prayer, that we would be one and that the world would know that we are his because we are unified. Well, let's consider these attitudes that Paul says we should have as Christ's people. Lowliness. Another way of saying humility. Interestingly, the The word Paul uses here is not actually found outside of the New Testament in Paul's time. Now, of course, we don't have every possible document that could have existed in his day, but nobody's ever found this word, I'm given to understand by Bible scholars. Uh, Nobody has has found this word in other documents other than in the New Testament. It's apparently a term coined by Christians to talk about the attitude we should have as Christ's people. It's a compound word. The, the, the elements of it existed, but it's just like in, in our language today, we invent new words from old ones and stick them together uh, to, uh, to uh, express a new thing, to describe something that's a new invention, for example. But here they've, they're expressing this uh, concept of Christian humility with a new expression. The first part of that word is uh, uh, tapanenos, if I've got it right. It's, uh, it literally means not rising from the ground. And the second elephant or element of it, not an elephant, I misspoke there. The second element of it is a 
reflexive of a word called phroneo. It starts with the F sound. That's where I was getting ahead of myself there and got tongue-tied. It means to have an opinion of oneself. So, not rising from the ground to have an opinion of oneself. So, in other words, to have an opinion of yourself that does not rise far above the ground. <clears throat> Humility. That's why it's often translated that way in many, uh, in many uh, translations. And here in the New King James Version, lowliness. Lowliness. Lowliness not in a uh, pessimistic kind of way. Not in a groveling sort of way. But in a humble sort of way. The second element, or the second, uh, second quality here, the second attitude, is gentleness or meekness. A humble attitude contributes to a mild spirit and a self-controlled spirit, where we learn to be gentle. Notice how helpful these attitudes are if you're wanting to maintain unity of the church or to show outwardly the invisible spiritual unity of the church. So we don't have too high of an opinion of ourselves and we learn to be gentle. The third one is patience or long-suffering. Literally long to be angered or greatly for a long time not wrathful. The opposite of being short-tempered, in other words. It reflects God's character of being slow to anger. There's a Lord that God could at any time and rightfully just smite us all for our sins. But he's slow to anger. He's patient with us. And so we should reflect that kind of patience. Slow to anger. A fourth quality, bearing with one another in love. Uh, This is the culmination of humility, gentleness, and patience. Out of our love in Christ, we humbly and gently are patient and not short-tempered with our fellow Christians from the love we share in Christ, so we bear with one another. And fifth, that we are endeavoring to be unified in the Holy Spirit. Notice again, this has to be accomplished by the Spirit. We can't do it apart from Him. But it's unlike our justification where it's all God's work. Uh, He here does the work. He empowers us, but we also make decisions here that cooperate with our sanctification. This is the Spirit-created unity for which Jesus prayed in John 17, that we would endeavor to be unified in the Holy Spirit. And that unity creates what he calls here the bond of peace. As we are bound together by the Holy Spirit, Not in discord, but in peace. Notice all of these things support the unity of God's people. So again, they they help us show outwardly a real spiritual unity that we have. Even when we are divided outwardly, uh, all true believers have a true spiritual unity. But we want to reflect that. Christ wants us to reflect that to the world around us. So Paul reminds the Ephesians in verses 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Notice he doesn't say, by the way, there would be one body if you would behave yourselves. No, 
It's, this is dependent on God's work, but he does want us to reflect outwardly this true spiritual reality that can't be seen. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The word one is repeated in those verses seven times. Maybe that's encouraging us to think of holiness, since seven points to holiness and completion and perfection. The Lord completed the work of creation in six days and rested on the seventh and hallowed that day. So it's a day of completion and rest and and perfection and holiness. Three of those ones, there are the persons of the Godhead. The Spirit, the Lord, Jesus, usually Paul means when he says the Lord, and the Father. All three are named there. The other four pertain to our salvation. One hope of your calling. One baptism. One faith. We see that these are things that pertain to our salvation. God is unified. God is one through though he's three in in person, so also, though many individuals, we are one in the church, not just our local congregation, but every church that is a true branch of Christ's church. We're one in body. Again, that's the visible church, and also really truly the invisible church is the body of Christ. We're one in hope, the pledge of our inheritance in Christ sealed by the Spirit that he's talked about before. So we share the same expectation of glory. That's what biblical hope is, an eager expectation of the things that God has promised. We believe they'll happen by faith. We hope for them. We look forward eagerly for them to happen. So we're one in body. We're one in hope. We're also one in faith, the things we believe. Again, there's no such thing as Christians who uh, believe different things in terms of the basic gospel. Uh, Contrary to what many modern historians say, they'll say in the early uh, Christian era, there were many Christianities and what's called Nicene Christianity won out. It's called that because it's the doctrine that was embraced at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Well, no, there were lots of heretics, but there there has only ever been one Christianity, one faith the one that was preached by the apostles. The faith, that the common faith that Jude writes about and says, I have to contend for the faith once delivered to all the saints. So we're one in body, one in hope, one in faith, and one in baptism, the sacramental sign of our entrance into God's covenant people. There's only one baptism. This, by the way, is why we don't rebaptize people who join our church who have been legitimately baptized elsewhere. Now, if they received something called baptism in a false church, we would still baptize them, but we're not rebaptizing them. They've never been baptized. But if they've received authentic Christian baptism, it doesn't matter what denomination it was in, we recognize it because there's one baptism. So we see the importance here of the unity of the church. So we're one in body, one in hope, one in faith, one in baptism. But 
in that unity, we're not expected or commanded to be clones or copies of one another. Church unity is not like the unity that you see uh, in certain cults where everybody is dressed in the same jumpsuit, right? We're not, we're not all the same. And we're not expected to be. There has to be certain commonalities between us, particularly in the basics of what we believe as Christians. But within that unity, there's a broad diversity in terms of gifts and abilities. As Paul says in verse 7, But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each believer has a measure of grace, a measure of a spiritual gift from Christ. So each believer has a gift or gifts that we're supposed to use for the growth and the maintenance of God's kingdom, for the edifying of fellow believers. But we have these gifts in different measure. Some have one, some have several. Some have a little of one, Others have a lot of it. For example, uh, one that's obvious is uh, the gift of preaching and teaching. There are lots of less obvious gifts in the church that are nevertheless still gifts. But that's one that's very obvious. There are lots of faithful preachers in the world. Not many who are quite as good as Charles Spurgeon. We, We don't have... Uh, Every preacher that is that gifted. Uh, Just as an aside from that, I remember uh, uh, Rosaria Butterfield once commenting that that sadly what a lot of people get from these wonderful conference experiences, maybe you go to some Christian conference and you have this supposed sort of mountaintop kind of experience, it's just so great and you're hearing these wonderful preachers who've been gathered from around the world and what a lot of Christians get from that is boy it's boring when I go home to my own pastor I have to listen to him again and really it should encourage them to listen to their pastor sure it might seem boring after a while when you hear the same guy preach over and over and over again he's got a particular preaching style but he has gifts from the Lord Before going further on that topic of unity, Paul cites Christ's authority to bestow these gifts. He's paraphrasing actually Psalm 68 verse 18 and verses 8 through 10 here where it says, Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Stop there and say, that does not mean that he went to hell when he was uh, in the grave, that he spiritually went to hell and was under the power of Satan or something. After When he was on the cross, he declared it finished. He didn't have any more work to do or any more suffering to do. All this is saying is that he who was on high as God, when he took on human nature, descended to earth. He who descended, Paul says, is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Christ came to earth, died for the sins of his people, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven. He defeated sin and death and Satan and brought a brought to God a host of people who were once captive to the enemy, slaves to sin and death, and now they belong to him. 
That's every believing Christian. He ascended to heaven and was seated at the Father's right hand, fulfilling Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7.13. So as Daniel 7.14 and Matthew 28.18 tell us, all authority now belongs to him. And as part of that authority, he bestows gifts like a victorious king of old. He distributes gifts to his people. In Paul's day, and uh, up until more recent centuries, it was a known thing, up to within the last thousand years, it was known in Western civilization that uh, kings bestowed gifts. There was a a whole culture of gift-giving, even in in our own uh, heritage as English speakers. There has this whole culture culture in Germanic culture and ancient Anglo-Saxon culture of the king being the gift giver to those who were dependent on him and in return what did they do? They protected the king. So the warriors for example who uh, lived in the king's uh, fortress and protected him were given gifts by him. And so like this king of old, particularly when kings were victorious in war, they would take the spoils of war and they would distribute them to their servants. So like that, Christ distributes gifts. He's a victorious king now, and he's taken us who were captive and freed us and brought us to his father. We belong to Christ now. By the way, in the New Testament... Uh, We're not told that we're utterly free. We do have freedom in Christ Jesus, but we're also referred to frequently as his slaves. But it isn't as if we have the choice of being Jesus' slave or being free. No, we're slaves to someone. The question is, whose slave are we? Do we have a master whose yoke is easy and burden is light, or do, do we enslave ourselves to sin and death? But here now, he distributes to his servants gifts. And by way of example of the gifts that Christ gives, Paul says at verse 11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, certainly he has gifted those people. But also notice that he has given them as gifts to the church. I heard once an examination of a man for the ministry, and somebody asked him a, a trick question, asked him, Are, do you think you're God's gift to the church? And uh, he first said no, because he was thinking in terms of the, the, the common way people would say that, like you know, to talk about a man who's arrogant and say, well, he thinks he's God's gift to women, or something like that, a guy who's a bit full of himself. But Literally, a pastor, an elder, is considered, in, in the Bible, I'm not saying this to brag, <laughs> this because the Bible says it, is a gift to the church from God. Christ gave, number one, apostles, the sent ones, who, as Ephesians 2.20 says, laid the foundation of the church. They wrote and endorsed the, the New Testament texts and gave confirmation through signs and wonders that they were speaking for God. He gave prophets, uh, people in the New Testament era like Agabus, we read of in Acts 21.10, who helped direct the early church through special revelations from God before the New Testament was written. You know, what did the New Testament church, before they had a a documented New Testament uh, to read, what did they do? Well, they had prophets to help them along the way. 
We also might include as prophets the writers of the New Testament who weren't apostles technically but had their endorsement. Mark, Luke, James, Jude, those are uh, were inspired by God, inspired writers of Scripture. All the inspired writers of the Old and New Testament are prophets. Third, Paul lists evangelists, people particularly gifted to go to new places to preach the gospel to those who have not heard it. And so what we saw was, they would read about this in Acts, don't we, that, that evangelists go forth and they're planting churches, and we have people like the apostles, Paul, for example, planting churches, and from those churches, people were going out into the communities around that city and founding other churches. And then what happens when the apostle or the evangelist who established the congregation moves on to establish another one somewhere somewhere else? Well, now you have to have elders. You have to have pastors or shepherds and teachers. The Greek grammar makes it clear that the pastor and teacher is the same person here. It doesn't say some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds, and some teachers. It rather says some pastors and teachers, some shepherds and teachers. Christ gave those officers in particular as a gift to the church. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. All of us, not just those who are in professional ministry, all of us, every Christian, has work of ministry that Christ has entrusted to us. And we are to do that. The job of the pastor and teacher is to build up by the scriptures, by the preaching of the gospel, shepherding, the elders shepherding together, equip the church for those things. And what is the goal of being thus built up? Unity, verse 13. So we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So uh, we, we note that in the church, by the way, that people have different ideas about set things of secondary importance. Things that are of primary importance we have to agree on. We have to agree on the faith that, that there is one God who is three in person. We have to agree that, that Jesus is the only means of salvation uh, we have to agree on uh, the value uh, and the sufficiency of Scripture as what it is inspired by God. But there are things of secondary importance, like uh, differences of opinion on baptism and things like that, that we can disagree on because we're all of us trying to understand Scripture and apply it correctly, and we're coming to different conclusions because of our fallibility. But as we dig deeper, part of the job that we have here is to come to unity of faith and knowledge because we're digging together deeply into the scriptures. Ultimately, we will all have the same ideas. It might not come until Christ returns, but we will all have the same idea of what the Bible means with perfect understanding at that point. But we're to be growing up toward being what? A perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When we have that unity and maturity, the results will be we won't be confused or gullible or able to be persuaded away from God's truth. 
the result, verse 14, that we should be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. The idea is that you're uh, maybe a boat on the water and it's being moved around by the blowing wind. We're not to be like that. I've sadly seen many who were like that. See how important it is to be in the body of believers. Not tossed to and fro about every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So that's the second thing. We will be speaking the truth in love. And then third, we will find further unity and mutual building up like a healthy body with all of the organs and systems working properly together. That's verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. So notice all of us are supplying together the things that are healthy for the whole body. According to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Uh, Recently in another sermon we noted that it's important that, uh, that we are all working together, that we come together for worship, for example, because if we don't, we're denying ourselves the gifts that others have and we're denying the, the others the gifts we have. Paul says the goal here is for us all to be using our gifts together for mutual edification. The response to what we know about the church, particularly its status as one nation, one household of God, one temple of the Lord, one body with Christ as the head, should be a desire to manifest those truths through visible unity. Unity of doctrine and worship, unity in the diversity of our gifts, and to use those gifts in unity for mutual upbuilding. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would make us one as you are one, that you would unify us in the faith and the living out of that faith, that we might grow more Christ-like, as individuals and mutually together for the glory of Christ and for the upbuilding of one another as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.